0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Only two of the top 100 newspapers in the country endorsed Donald Trump in 2016. 57 endorsed his opponent, Hillary Clinton. It was the first time the Arizona Republic backed a Democrat for president in its 126-year history. But disapproval from established media didn't stop Donald Trump becoming president. On the contrary, his antipathy with reporters has become a badge of pride for the president and his supporters. Journalists are used to thinking of themselves as impartial watchdogs of American democracy. But have they too fallen into hyperpartisanship? With 129 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prudeau, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is the era of media impartiality over? President Trump began a new chapter in his torrid relationship with the media when he returned to the campaign trail in Tulsa last weekend. In his rambling speech, reporters became simply the fakers. Mr. Trump's antagonism has poured fuel on a fire already raging through newsrooms as digital media upends business models. Journalistic impartiality is under scrutiny as never before. How has the Trump presidency changed the media? And can he ride the outrage rocket to re-election? With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fasman, the Washington correspondent. How impartial are you guys feeling today? Completely
2: impartial. No fear, no favor. How about you, Charlotte?
3: Yes, I live in a state of complete equanimity at all times, so feeling good.
1: No emotional. just cold as ice. That's what I wanted to hear. Both of you have been traveling around this week a bit. John Fasman, you've been on a reporting trip, your first proper one, for a long time. And Charlotte, you were in New York this week in the city. What did you both discover?
3: New York is very much coming back to life. The city began phase two of reopening on Monday, which means that some offices are opening, retail stores are opening, restaurants are offering some outdoor seating. So when I was there the crews that had been frantically boarding up store windows were now taking down some of the plywood. There were restaurants that optimistically had set up tables, not just on the sidewalk, but had gotten permission to spread those tables into the street where cars are usually parked. So I think there's a bit of a sense of optimism coupled with concern about rising cases elsewhere in the country. And there have been travel restrictions put in place for people coming from the South, in particular, into New York. There are now rules that they need to quarantine for two weeks. So as New York has recovered, the rest of the country seems to be having more trouble with COVID.
1: How about you, John?
2: I am all right. I did my first reporting trip to Richmond, Virginia, and spent my first day reporting doing socially distanced interviews outdoors, masked up. It went much more smoothly than I thought it would go. It is possible to do this job socially distanced and outdoors. Um,
1: Yeah, we're good. Okay, well, let's start this podcast by going a bit further afield to Eastern Europe. There's a story in this week's paper about the US government-sponsored radio stations that became tools of soft power during the Cold War, and about how the White House is trying to influence their editorial direction. Our Europe correspondent, Matt Steinglass, has been looking into it.
0: Back in the Cold War, the United States started sponsoring shortwave radio stations in order to penetrate the Iron Curtain and get free and impartial media and news to people uh, in communist countries. Those agencies consist of uh, the Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and Radio Free Asia. But at this stage, they aren't shortwave radio stations anymore so much as news websites uh, and the sort of general news gathering organizations that we've all pretty much turned into.
1: Some of these stations and websites make news available in countries that are still authoritarian or communist, you know, think of Cuba or China. But in the case of Voice of America or Radio Free Europe broadcasting in Eastern Europe, why are they still important, given that the Berlin Wall fell in 1989?
0: One of the things that's happened in Eastern and Central Europe over the last 15 years, especially, is that formerly free media outlets have been taken over more and more by either oligarchs or by government-friendly businessmen, or in some cases by governments themselves. So the media sphere there has become much less independent, much less neutral, and much more oriented towards producing political propaganda. Oligarchs often use their newspapers or their television outlets just to slander their rivals, or they back one political party against another. And that means that the media climate in those countries is is very corrupt. And the United States continues to see that it has an interest in promoting an independent and impartial
1: media in order to backstop democracy in these countries. So, Matt, the White House nominated a new head of the government agency that oversees all these different channels. Michael Pack, he was then confirmed by the Senate. What is the significance of that appointment? And tell us a bit about him. One of the key
0: stipulations for all of these agencies, it's written into law, is that there can be no political interference in their news gathering or editorial operations. Michael Pack comes from a very ideologically committed background. He is a lifelong Republican. He served as the head of a think tank called the Claremont Institute, which is um, associated with a lot of alt-right thinking over the last four years. They produced some of the most fervent pro-Trump propaganda in the 2016 campaign. And he's a close ally of Stephen Bannon who was formerly the head of Breitbart News and President Trump's chief strategist at the White House for a while. The fear has been that Mr. Pack is going to use the agencies to promote the messaging of the Trump administration, and that they are going to shift towards a propagandistic pro-American, but more importantly, pro-Republican and pro-Trump line. And while direct interference in editorial content is prohibited, it's of course possible to accomplish the same means by making sure that you appoint friendly people to the right positions. Democrats tried to stall PAC's appointment for about two years. It was held up in the Senate. But after a brouhaha over some Voice of America reporting on, on uh, China in the spring, it was abruptly pushed through. And quite quickly after he was appointed. First, the director and deputy director of Voice of America resigned. And then a couple of days later, Mr. Pack fired the directors of all of the other services under the uh, U.S. Agency for Global Media. And that did not exactly dispel the anxieties about how he planned to use his appointment.
1: Matt, Donald Trump's run-ins with the media in America are no secret. And in some sense, he's built his presidency on running against the media. The opportunity to directly control a whole bunch of radio stations and websites seems too good to be true. Was the resonance for President Trump's battles with the US media here?
0: Donald Trump, like a lot of populist politicians, has defined himself against the media and against the traditional media, the mainstream media, as they like to call it. And in this case, he has the opportunity to pull the strings through personnel appointments at media operations that are run by the government. The entire ideological edifice of the Trump presidency believes that there's no such thing as neutral news. There are the so-called mainstream media outlets, which he sees as opposed to him, and then there are media outlets that are friendly to him. So the idea of an independent broadcaster whose mission is to report impartially and free of political influence is something that he doesn't instinctively understand or respect. And I think the anxiety here is that in an administration that doesn't really believe in the existence of neutral, impartial media, it'll be really difficult to preserve an institution that has won its credibility over the last 50 years by presenting the closest thing that we can get
1: to impartial news. John Fasman, let's start with you because you were looking into this story alongside Matt Steinglass, albeit from the DC end. I found it hard to know, reading about this myself, whether what's happened at VOA and the other news agencies is a sort of nefarious plot by the Trump administration to ensure friendlier coverage of kind of MAGA type figures like Viktor Orban, or if it's a more sort of characteristic Trump administration doing something that's against America's interests, you know. Throwing away a whole load of soft power effectively in a fit of absent mindedness. What did you conclude from looking at this one? I don't think
2: we know quite yet, but the signs are worrying. These outfits that fall under the US Agency for Global Media include Voice of America, Radio Free Asia, Radio Free Europe. And they are outlets that sort of broadcast, they do a couple of things. One is they broadcast stories about America to places that don't generally get unvarnished stories about America. So they broadcast stories about America and American culture broadly in a nonpartisan way into parts of the world that are not free. The more important aspect of their mission, in my view, is that they hire local reporters in countries where they work. These are often countries with no tradition of a free press and teach them how to be skeptical, basically how to be reporters. If that part of the mission is compromised, it means it's not that the sort of American consumers will notice a difference. It's that the rest of the world will lose voice for free press, they'll lose a thumb on the scale for free expression, and they will lose that sort of pipeline of reporters being trained in skeptical inquiry. That's what worries me.
3: To broaden it out a bit, I guess I would add that these trends that we see, distrust of mainstream media, are really an evolution of trends that have been in place for a long time. They didn't originate with this current generation of leaders. Back in 2004, there was a report from Pew, which polls on public opinion that showed that Fox news cable news had been able to really expand the American audience of news consumers and pointed to the increasing divide between partisan perceptions of different news outlets, and that Democrats, basically their view of mainstream media had remained unchanged, and Republicans had become more distrustful. And you've seen that trend accelerate over the past 15 years. And that's what culminated with Donald Trump, who's used it remarkably to his advantage, both in his campaign in 2016, and then increasingly going forward in this campaign.
1: One of the things that struck me listening to Matt talking about how Donald Trump doesn't really think that there's any such thing as an impartial media, right? There there are media who are for him and on his side, and there are media who are against him, and there's no kind of neutral turf, is that how similar that is to some of the criticisms of mainstream media that have been coming from the left recently. You know, A lot of journalists, particularly the younger generation of journalists, younger than us guys, we're all in our early 40s arguing that objectivity in journalism is really impossible, that everybody brings their biases to their work, and that straining for some kind of phony objectivity actually does a disservice to readers. Now, those arguments are not the same, and I'm sure the people making them wouldn't like to be compared to Donald Trump. But nevertheless, there's a sort of similarity there, isn't there? There's a scepticism coming from different ends of the political spectrum about what it is that journalists do and what their method should be. I think there's a slight difference
2: in that Donald Trump believes that any media outlet that questions him is against him. Any media outlet that does not parrot what he says is against him. I think that the the argument against the sort of view from nowhere journalism is an argument for whatever it's worth. I don't agree with it. I think that the effort to question your own biases and try to remain objective in evaluating competing claims is really useful. But the argument against it is that we shouldn't pretend that something is valid when it is invalid. That is, when you present evidence for climate change and evidence, readers can't see, but I'm doing finger quotes, evidence against it are not the same and shouldn't be treated as the same. So I think while it is extremely important that, that journalists remain trustworthy and that we question what our own biases are as we report and that we question what we're told by anybody, I think that those two arguments aren't the same epistemologically or in what they want out of media.
3: The other thing that Trump does, which has been a challenge since he first appeared on the national stage in a political form, is that he just goads the media in a way that's really hard to ignore. When you have the day after he's inaugurated have his press secretary saying that his crowds are bigger than Obama's when that's patently untrue, you put the media in this very new position of having to state obvious facts, and then even the statement of obvious facts become controversial, let alone the subjects on which they're more nuanced. But more broadly with Trump, I mean, the idea that he not only challenges and sets himself up in opposition to the mainstream media, but he also really disintermediates it. Reagan had, of course, used television to his advantage in a remarkable way in the 80s, Reagan having been a former Actor And Trump, similarly with his experience with The Apprentice and so forth, was not particularly interested in courting the public simply through the media. Obviously, he does have a very strong relationship with Fox News, but he's really interested in a direct connection through Twitter. He, and in other channels, he's able to have this intimate relationship with the public that's kind of different from the way that you saw media acting as a go between the president and the broader population.
1: It's a pretty strange experience being a journalist covering Trump rallies because there's something very theatrical about the booing of the press. You know, you stand there in the media pen where you're obliged to be and at various points during various speeches, basically several thousand people turn around and boo and jeer at you. But then I found that when you tuck your press pass away and go wandering around in the crowd and talk to people, they're often pretty friendly. I mean maybe it helps to have a funny accent and so I'm seen as a, a sort of Martian when when wandering around in the crowd. But I remember having the same experience covering conservative conferences like CPAC in Washington DC. There's an outfit that always shows up there called Don't Believe the Liberal Media. And I remember going up to their stall and having a chat with them and they were super polite and said how much they loved The Economist and that kind of thing. So there's something very performative about Trump's hostility to the media and the way the crowds at his rallies are so hostile. You know, it does feel, I know there was some, you know, kind of violence early on in 2016 in the campaign, but it does feel like pantomime a lot of the time. Yeah, there's a sort of performative at two minutes hate aspect of
2: it when, when Trump will sort of start deriding the media. One other thing that I found unusual at a lot of political rallies pre-Trump, the media was usually in the back so we could get in and get out quite easily. At Trump rallies, we're often down sort of in the dead center so that the entire crowd, when Trump starts talking about the fake news and the fake media, can shout and jeer at us. But I've also found that even among some of the people I've seen in the crowd sort of screaming and jeering, if I go up and talk to them afterward, they will almost always speak politely and respond with the respect they're given and all that. So there is an aspect of it that's performative. It doesn't mean it's not worrying. I think it's always a bad idea for politicians to whip thousands of people up into hatred of anything or anyone. But it does seem like a very thin veneer of dislike. And underneath it, it's just people.
3: I don't know. My experience experience is that I wouldn't discount it. Yes, I think it's hard to be as rude to someone to their face than when they're anonymized. But the distrust of liberal media is very real. And the distrust in the sense that they are part of the establishment that is stacking the odds against a large majority of Americans, that's real. And that's very deep seated. And as I said, that's been growing over the course of not just Trump's presidency, but for a very long time in the way that The consumption of news has been polarized. People just get very different messages. And so I think that, yes, I think once you're confronted with somebody who's a human, your inclination is to be polite. And and on both sides, people tend to be able to have a conversation, which is one reason why, you know, hopefully Washington would work better if you get more people just sitting in a room and working together. But that, that distrust is very, very powerful and I think will be hard to even if Joe Biden is to become president, I think he'll have a really hard time unifying the country And the way presidents always talk about unifying the country. Uh, it's hard to do that when the messaging is just so different depending on which news you trust.
1: All right. Thank you both. In a moment, we'll find out where the idea of journalistic impartiality came from. But first, a reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, you're missing out. Wherever you are, you can get the best introductory offer to The Economist's unvarnished truth-telling at economist.com slash 2020 election pod. There's a briefing this week on catastrophic risks the world might face beyond the pandemic. And of course, The Economist's 2020 election forecast that we launched a couple of weeks ago. It's updated daily so you can get a clear picture of how the fortunes of Donald Trump and Joe Biden are shifting as election day approaches. That link for a special rate on a new subscription is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. It's in the show notes for this episode. Founded in 1789, the Gazette of the United States was one of the first papers in the New Republic and an organ of George Washington's Federalist Party. The early American news business was overtly partisan and dependent on political patronage, and really slow. In 1841, news of President Harrison's death took 110 days to reach LA via the Pony Express. The news by pony model imploded three years later, when Samuel Morse managed to wire a message from Washington to Baltimore more or less instantaneously. What hath God wrought? Morse asked. The modern news business is one answer. As the telegraph supplied the first means of mass communication, it was matched by demand among Americans for knowledge about their rapidly expanding country. A year later, in 1845, the US annexed Texas, provoking war with Mexico. There were only 130 miles of telegraph wire confined to the northeast of the country, but newspapers had already figured out how to use the new technology to beat the government mail system. President James Polk learned of the American victory at Veracruz from the publisher of the Baltimore Sun. The paper had been employing the services of a man named Daniel Craig, one of the first to spy the value of being first in the news business. The fastest ships from Europe then were the Cunard liners. Their first stop after crossing the Atlantic was Halifax, Nova Scotia. Craig would board the ships in Canada with a basket of pigeons. During the two-day voyage south, he read the latest European papers, copying the most valuable tidbits onto tiny pieces of tissue paper. As the Massachusetts coast came into view, Craig released the pigeons with the news from Europe strapped to their legs. They reached his Boston home long before the ship docked. Craig's wife, Helena, distributed the news to clients in the city newspapers, and by telegraph to Wall Street. Craig's plan was genius, but convoluted. There was an urgent need to expand the telegraph network. In 1848, six New York dailies, normally fierce competitors, clubbed together to form an agency for distributing news via telegraph the Associated Press. Daniel Craig was hired as an agent of the AP and set about turning it into a national monopoly. For Craig, the news business had no high moral purpose. News was a commodity, no different from a string of onions. But the news agency had a profound impact on American journalism. For the AP to beat its competitors, reliability and accuracy were paramount. Crucially, AP reports were sold to papers across the political spectrum. To work for multiple clients, the news had to be stripped of personal or political interpretation. As Washington correspondent Lawrence Gobright told Congress, My business is to communicate facts. My instructions do not allow me to make any comment upon the facts which I communicate. I try to be truthful and impartial. A neutral point of view was new in American journalism, but it soon set the tone for news reporting. So did the AP way of telling the story. The pyramid style, still taught in journalism school, replaced the chronological order of reporting. The most important facts went at the top, followed by the other facts in descending order of importance. This was a way of dealing with the unreliability of telegraph lines, which could fail in the midst of a transmission. Brevity, homogeneity and impartiality became prized journalistic traits, just as the trade began to professionalise. Meanwhile, Craig's dream of a national news monopoly was stymied by the outbreak of war. The telegraph line over the Potomac was cut on the 1st of June 1861, severing AP's access to the Confederate States. Charlotte, that trip back into the 19th century, I hope, made clear that this idea of journalistic impartiality is relatively recent isn't it i mean it wasn't around in the 18th century it wasn't around in the early 19th century and also that journalists ideas about what they're meant to be doing are highly conditioned by the business models that are available to support that journalism
3: it's been a remarkable few decades of change i mean back in 1949 the fcc had a report recommending something that came to be known as the Fairness Doctrine. And anyone who had a TV or radio broadcast license was supposed to both consider important and controversial issues, and in doing so, they were supposed to try to be fair. They were supposed to present contrasting points of view. And in 1987, the FCC put an end to the Fairness Doctrine, so that was the end of that. But you did see that principle of fairness pervading not just broadcast media, but papers as well. And that was driven in part because of the advertising model. If you had a local paper, advertisers wanted to reach everyone in the town where that local paper was distributed. They didn't want to alienate half the town by having their ads run beside very uh, controversial or deeply opinionated pieces of news. So there was this even-handedness that was driven both through regulation and through commercial models that you saw for much of the 20th century.
2: I think that's right. As the news business has grown, national and ad dollars have declined. I think people have realized there's more money to be made in partisanship than in objectivity. And so you've seen the incentives go from trying to appeal to as sort of broad and thin a base as possible to trying to appeal to a narrow and much deeper one. The other thing that's changed since the Fairness Doctrine was invented is the sheer number of broadcasters on TV and radio. I think the Fairness Doctrine was in part. A sort of reaction to scarcity. If you only have three national broadcasters, you want to make sure they give people as well-informed a range of opinions as possible. That's no longer really how things work. The average person has, you know, 800 TV stations, hundreds of radio stations and online outlets. So there's less of a call for every single outlet to be as thoroughly fair as there was before.
3: You've also seen different news organizations, in particular Fox, they leap on different political moments as big opportunities to expand their audience. After 9-11, when Fox was really a full-throated supporter of the war on terrorism in January 2002, that's when it finally surpassed CNN in the ratings race. So becoming more strident can help in very clear ways to expand news outlets' business. The other interesting thing is the Economist YouGov had a poll this month that looked at Partisan opinions of different big news sources. And as you would expect, Republicans trust Fox more than Democrats do by a very wide margin. Democrats trust the Washington Post more than Republicans do. That's not particularly surprising. But what really struck me actually was how Republicans don't really trust any news sources by a lot. I mean, even Fox News, 57% of Republicans in the poll found it to be very trustworthy. But that leaves a lot of Republicans who find it either actively untrustworthy or don't really have a strong view. The Wall Street Journal, which is seen as a conservative paper, which is a conservative paper, just 34% of Republicans in our poll found it to be trustworthy or very trustworthy. And then for the New York Times and CNN, it's abysmal. I mean, much lower, less than 20% of Republicans find those outlets to be trustworthy. But I was just struck by even particularly the journal, which I think sees itself as a credible response to the New York Times presenting conservative views in a a relatively balanced way. A pretty large majority of Republicans don't trust it.
1: Well, one way President Trump has tried to get around the antipathy towards him from most of the mainstream media is through his extensive use of social media. We'll get into the politics of social media in just a moment. The rise of social media often gets the blame for increased political polarisation. But the internet giants claim to be impartial, just as the news agencies that came before them did. Ludwig Ziegler is The Economist's US technology editor based in San Francisco. I asked him to explain the contradiction.
4: So it may seem kind of intuitive that they're impartial. I mean, they're, they're a bit like telephone lines. And when you talk on telephone lines or on your phone... The phone doesn't kind of make your, uh, your conversation more polarized. But with social media, it's not that simple. They use, for example, algorithms to maximize engagement and make sure that you stay on, let's say, Facebook's site longer. So social media in itself prefers certain type of information. News that causes outrage travels much faster on social media. Are they neutral? I don't think they're neutral. And now the question is, do they want to be neutral? Yes, of course they want to be neutral because uh, they don't want to get involved in censoring speech. They don't want to get in a fight with the right or the left or whatever. They want to be like telephone lines, but but they're not.
1: Ludwig, in presidential politics, it's often easy to make the mistake of thinking that the next election will be a repeat of the last one. How will 2020 be different, do you think, from 2016 for the social media companies? I mean, they came in for a lot of criticism after 2016 particularly because of the uh, Russian misinformation campaigns that flourished on Twitter and Facebook. They've since tried to put in some changes to rein that sort of stuff in. How different will things be this time around?
4: That's a very good point because, I mean, in in, in 2016, I wrote, wrote a long piece about technology and politics. And the conventional wisdom back then was that the Democrats are way ahead in terms of technology, that they really have it down that they have a huge database and they can kind of contact voters to get out to vote. And, and the Clinton campaign had lots of people working in Brooklyn at their headquarters on technology. And as it turns out, actually, the, the campaign that was much better in using social media, uh, at least, was the Trump campaign. So the, the lesson there is that things could be much different this time around, and we don't really know the role social media will play. We recently had this thing with K-pop fans, the fans of, of of this Korean type of pop music, in a way, uh, sinking Trump's event in Oklahoma by basically registering en masse for the show for Trump's speech and then, then not showing up. So TikTok could play a much bigger role than we expect.
1: Ludwig, can you tell us a bit more about what happened with TikTok and Donald Trump's Tulsa rally?
4: Okay, let's go four or five years back. In 2016, you remember that the Russian interfered on, on Facebook and implanted all this misinformation. So, so you had an external actor manipulating a relatively open social media platform. Before Trump's rally, another group of foreign actors, quote-unquote, even though many of them are American, did something similar so that the fans of Korean uh, pop music, they kind of banded together, organized online, and many of them registered for tickets for the Trump's rally, never planning to attend. And th- that was one reason why the arena in Tulsa uh, holds 19,000 people and there were only 6,000 seats taken. And that just shows you that it's such a very changing environment. And if you're clever, you can mount very uh, effective campaigns on social media. And I think this is only the beginning. And and some experts actually have warned the liberals shouldn't be too happy about what happened to Trump in, in, in Tulsa, because that type of action could be also used by the right.
1: So John, in 2016, we saw the big social media companies insisting, as they long have, that they're nothing like media companies. You know, they have no opinion on the content that flies around their platforms, that they just provide the pipes for it to travel along, if that metaphor's not too horribly mixed. 2020 looks like it might be a little bit different in that both... Facebook and Twitter are taking some views on you know, what is fake, what is true, what's authentic, what isn't. I mean, they're, they're not going as far as many people would like them to, but they've given a bit of ground there.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I think they're both more attentive to sort of the type of speech that is being put forth on their service. You've seen Twitter flag some of uh, Donald Trump's statements as, as manipulated media or calls to violence. He has pushed back against that, but Twitter seems to have fairly strong First Amendment grounds for doing what it is doing, and also its terms of service say it can flag or block people when it does so. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act says that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider." Section 230 is still in effect, but I think social media companies are aware that Republicans and Democrats each dislike it for their own reason. And I think they're much more apprehensive about doing something that provokes a political reaction against them.
3: The other thing that they're conscious of is that it increasingly looks like this might threaten their business model, not just from regulators, but from customers. In the same way that it's been very hard for media organizations to maintain absolute neutrality in the Trump era, companies have been taking a stand. You see again and again in the Trump presidency, companies under pressure from employees having to make strong statements about their values. And in the past month, you've had a campaign growing for advertisers to stop advertising on Facebook for the whole month of July. And companies who are participating include Ben & Jerry's, North Face, Patagonia, There are different ad agencies, uh, a subsidiary of Dentsu, which is a very big advertising company, is advising their clients to take part in the boycott of Facebook. So there's long been this regulatory pressure, but companies in general have just seen Facebook as a necessary evil to reach their customers. And you see now companies um, being a bit more cautious, wondering whether affiliation with Facebook actually undermines their brand.
1: John Fassman, we're about to see an absolute avalanche of spending by the Trump 2020 campaign and by the Biden campaign on social media. How different do you think it will be to the campaigns that were waged in in 2016 on Twitter and Facebook and elsewhere?
2: Well, I imagine both campaigns are going to be very active on social media, probably more so than on broadcast. Joe Biden has gotten a lot of flack for running a lackluster campaign. He trailed uh President Trump in, in cash on hand. He's still May, but he's catching up in cash on hand. And he's also been spending heavily. So in the in the two weeks, the last week of May and the first week of June, Biden spent 6.8 million on Facebook and Google ads, and Trump spent 6.7 million. I would expect you'll see both campaigns staying really neck and neck from now until election day.
3: Yeah, and I think it'll be really interesting to see how far Trump is willing to push the platforms. Twitter, as we've heard, has been putting notices next to some of Trump's tweets. But last week, Facebook also took down a Trump advertisement that included a symbol that had been used in Nazi Germany. The Trump campaign said that Antifa had, had been using the symbol as well, and that's why they included it. But it'll be really interesting to see how much Trump wants to set himself up in opposition, not just to the mainstream media, but now even to social media platforms. He talks a lot about being censored, and I think that does play to his advantage. So he's going to have to balance the desire to reach as many voters as possible through social media, while also still having this underdog persona that he's liked to cultivate.
1: There's one thing, which is the campaign spending on social media, and then there's another, which is the free media that politicians earn by saying interesting or more often you know, controversial things. In 2016, of course, Donald Trump got an enormous amount of free media, including on Twitter and Facebook, by saying you know, controversial things, and that worked pretty well for him. I think it's going to be really interesting to see in the run up to November whether that's a strategy that still pays off when you're the incumbent you know or whether you know Joe Biden will get a bit more free media attention because he's the challenger
2: or whether the trick of saying outrageous things to get earned media has just sort of worn off when it comes to Trump that people sort of understand that he says and does outrageous things for attention and it turns out to be
1: less determinative than it was i don't think there's a whole load of evidence of that happening yet but we'll see okay Before you guys go, I have a quiz for you. Charlotte, I can see you're looking delighted on our video conference. The first time The Economist mentioned Facebook was in a September 2006 article about the rise of social media. What was America's most visited website then?
3: In 2006.
1: Was it Google?
2: The Google landing page?
3: Was it AOL.com? It must have been Google. Yeah, Google. I'm just going to ride on Fasman's coattails. Google.
1: It was not Google. It was not AOL. It was MySpace. Rupert Murdoch's news corporation bought MySpace the year before. And, you know, it seems like a long time ago, but there was a time when MySpace was the most popular American website. Which major retailer was trying to get in on the action in 2006 by launching its own social network called The Hub, quote, to widespread derision, according to The Economist? Oh.
2: I
3: don't think I don't think Walmart would have done that.
1: That was going to be my guess.
3: I think it sounds like something Gap would have tried to do and failed at.
1: Did you, Charlotte? Did you cover retail for a while? Did you cover Walmart?
3: I did cover Walmart. Walmart does stupid things, but it doesn't do things that are that stupid. I mean, it, generally, <laughs> I find them to be an extremely savvy company, and they were not. I don't see them doing the hub.
1: It was, in fact, Walmart, Charlotte. Ah. <laughs> walmart's social network quote forbade racy content so it was um you know a clean version of facebook which is probably why it's probably why it didn't succeed in the first place with typical foresight the economist wrote that the social networking business model quote had bags of potential so we were right about that one for once
3: this is i think is my absolute low point in a very very poor history of quiz performance before i'm most ashamed by this one that I most loved about Walmart when I was covering Walmart, and I went down to see them in Bentonville, is that all their meetings begin two minutes early, because everybody is so interested in efficiency. They're extremely prompt. Obviously, they have very few journalists on staff.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thanks, John.
3: Bye. Thank you.
1: That's all from us. If you like the podcast, please leave a rating and a review on your podcast app, you can also let us know what you think via email. Radio at is the address. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.